Welcome to Rotating Reels. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor May, the other one, Keegan Tran, the other other one, Hank Showalter. Today we got a great episode for you. We're reviewing The White Tiger, a new film out on Netflix. We're really excited to talk about it. But before we do, we're going to go over what we've been watching this week. So Keegan, tell us what you've been watching. Uh... Sure. It's actually a little bit of a long week. So for viewers, we're recording a little bit later in the week than we typically do. I usually use my weekends to catch up on uh, film and television, but we're recording after the weekend. So this is usually about two weeks worth of stuff. So um, first is a little bit of a disappointment. So uh, I checked out 30 Coins, which is a new show on HBO Europe. It's set in Spain and it's a show about a priest who was sent out of Italy because of a failed exorcism. Um, not a huge spoiler. This, you know, is about 15 minutes into the first episode, but it fully leans into the supernatural elements. Um, when it's at its best, it's very Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, full like body horror schlock. Um, I was surprised, given kind of the like character slower scenes, that it had a pretty large budget when it came to the special effects. Lots of physical stuff. Um, lots of like blood and and like really really good effects that are not always you know cgi so i like that but you really have to work hard to get to any of the more like horror elements or any of the like kind of fun schlocky stuff um, and the stuff that's there as far as any kind of plot or narrative to string it all together is pretty boring pretty unrewarding and at like an hour and 20 minutes per episode didn't really feel like it was worth the slog so i watched the first two episodes i think there's six that have aired currently um, and I believe this is going to be an eight-episode miniseries, so um, I can recommend it kind of as a background show. It's in Castellano, so it's kind of harder to throw on in the background since I don't understand um, unless it was English dubbed, so um, kind of hit or miss for me. Next up, I watched The Wolverine from 2013, which was the second spinoff of um, X-Men Origins. This is Wolverine going to Japan. Uh, very, very weird, very out there. Horribly written, um, acting leaves a lot to be desired, but it's a lot of kind of mindless fun. With WandaVision being out, I'm like on full Marvel mode, so been picking up some new comics. I've been reading House of M um, and the Neil Gaiman Eternals, so definitely wanted to jump back in with some MCU stuff. This one is not really that great, uh, but it's really fun to watch. I was watching it with my girlfriend, and about halfway through, she said, uh, this is not a very good movie as far as... Uh, kind of the approach of demasculating Asian men in the in the show it's it's very like these small Japanese guys and then Wolverine comes in with you know his big American machismo and kind of solves all the problems so uh whatever that's all aside it's very fun to watch there's a really awesome fight sequence on a bullet train that I think is probably one of the best in the entire X-Men series so I'd recommend it again very mindless very fun Next one is probably the thing that I have the least to bring up about is Marvel Anime X-Men. So this was kind of a failed experiment between uh, Marvel and Studio Madhouse, which is a pretty acclaimed anime production studio. They did Cardcaptor Sakura, um, they did the Ninja Scroll series, lots of really big names, um, but these series didn't really take off. They did four of these, X-Men being, I think the first one, they did Wolverine and Iron Man as well. Um, Pretty bland, not a lot to talk about on this one, so I don't know if I'm going to push through. I'm about four episodes out of 12. And then the last thing is I watched Iron Man 3, which was his last um, independent movie, um, last appearance from Tony Stark outside of like the Avengers stuff. Um, also not really that great either. Really, really good performance from Robert Downey Jr., who is like just 
incredibly synonymous with the character of X-Men. Brings up some really fun stuff. Kind of wants to play around and introduce this like PTSD subplot, which I think is really awesome. Um, but they don't do enough to follow through on it. And I don't really think bringing in AIM or a lot of the like really bad late aughts cgi does much to help out the movie at all but uh, i think the stuff that like leads into age of ultron and a lot of like tony's fear of of the future and like having these paranoid anxiety attacks is something that's really fun so um this is probably the one that i enjoyed the most even though again still leaves a lot to be desired from a script perspective so a very marvel superhero heavy week nice nice okay hank what did you watch all right um, I actually had kind of a weird week. I have more stuff that I watched than last week, but less than I would have liked because uh, I, I, I spent a lot of my free time this week. I'm doing some like volunteer editing for a, a role-playing book uh, by, by a, 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 a Serbian author that I like. And uh, so it, it takes some time to do nice. editing because he's, he's a really evocative writer. Um, but, you know, like sometimes like some of the English transitions and stuff kind of, you know, uh, come up so you know mm. you, you got to keep a close eye because it's not stuff that jumps out is like especially like in need of editing you know like it's evocative prose but you'll catch things like there will be a plural where you'd expect a singular or anything but that's not what i've been mm. watching that's just the reason i haven't watched as much stuff as, <laughs> as i'd like um so what i've been watching uh i've got a number of things uh, i'm going to include some tv series in here because a lot of my watching time is tv stuff so be prepared for that so first of all, uh, last week I mentioned that I was rewatching Mob Psycho 100. Uh, just finished up that the rewatch of the first season uh, early this week, and you know everything I said last week about it holds true this week. It's it's a really cool looking show. It's kind of like a fun take on like an almost superhero-y sort of setting, um, and I actually particularly like the ending to the first season. Uh, without spoiling too much, there's a, a character that's introduced early on that seems like he might just kind of be a plot device to make some of the subplots happen. But he comes uh, he comes kind of into his own as a character in the very last couple couple episodes of the first season. So anyway, if you ever are watching Mob Psycho 100 and there's a character where you're like, oh man, I hope they develop this guy more, good chance that uh, if it's the same guy I'm thinking of, you'll you'll get what you're looking for. So watch through that first season. Nice, um, nice. Anything else? Yeah, oh yeah, I've got some more. Um, so I, second TV thing, I tried out The Great North, which is, uh, for those of you that don't know, it's uh, kind of like a another series from some of the folks that worked on Bob's Burgers. Uh, it's got a very similar animation style, kind of a similar humor, but it's set in Alaska. It's about kind of like a, an Alaskan frontier family. And, uh, you know, it's got Nick Offerman in it. I believe it's got Megan Mullally in it. I love both of them. Um, but I have to say, this show hasn't really landed for me yet. I'm just, like, an episode and a half in, roughly. And, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say it's, it's not worth watching. You know, go check it out if, you're, if you've got, like, a lot of room in your heart and in your schedule for, like, a kind of heartwarming animated comedy. But uh, I felt like when I was watching this show, they were kind of leaning heavily on having a well-loved voice cast and the writing kind of suffered i felt like every single line of dialogue feels like it's there to set up a joke 
but the mm. like in Bob's Burgers, a lot of the dialogue sets up jokes or completes a joke, but it feels like kind of like well supported by like the characters. You know, you know the characters, so the fact they're making that joke makes a lot of sense. In the Great North, I felt like they're trying to rely on like the same sort of a style without actually like really introducing us to the characters that much. Like you get a bit of character introduction early on, but like the jokes they're making, like I, I haven't seen the characters living their lives. Like I have in a more developed series like Bob's burgers. And so they, they, they just, they, they feel like they're in a vacuum. I don't know if I'm loving the series. Don't know if I'll finish it. Um, mm. Though I, I would say the voice performances, not bad. Um, not not like knocking my socks off or anything but uh you know it, it's always fun to hear a bit more of offerman's voice for me at least so yeah, anyway great north. exactly what you mean now nice. trying to trying to start that one up sent me back to bob's burgers which is a comfort food show for me and i've never uh, watched bob's burgers oh, so good oh yeah you gotta watch bob's burgers uh but i would actually recommend first watching through an hbo series called flight of the concords oh i've watched um, that yeah, so Flight of the Concords, it's it's like a, a novelty music series following a couple New Zealand uh, like singer-songwriters. But the reason I recommend watching it before Bob's Burgers is that it includes a couple of the standout actors from Bob's Burgers. Uh, first of all, it's got Eugene Merman playing the Concords landlord, and he would go on to play Gene Belcher in Flight of the Concords. And so it's kind of fun to see how he kind of like his voice sounds exactly the same in both roles and so it's kind of funny seeing like a landlord evolve into like a young fart obsessed child and then also (laughs) um that classic metamorphosis (laughs) exactly it happens all the time um but then also it's got a god help me out on her name keegan uh what's the girl that plays louise in bob's burgers oh i'm blanking let me pull her up uh kristen shawl Christian Shaw. I don't know why I thought Mel. Anyway, uh, Flight of the Concords has also got Christian Shaw playing kind of like a weird stalker character. And it's funny seeing, like, again, her voice is exactly the same in Flight of the Concords and in Bob's Burgers, where she plays Louise Belcher, the youngest daughter of the Belcher family. And uh, so it's kind of like fun watching this live action series where you see what she looks like, you hear her voice, and then seeing her play something completely different from this crazy stalker lady, which is a young girl. And yet somehow it's still like very believable having seen it beforehand. So I think like just watching Flight of the Concord, seeing a couple of those people in different roles kind of like lends a little bit of extra something to Bob's Burgers for me. But anyway... Her, I've been watching Bob's Burgers this week. Her voice Those is, are the thoughts I developed. I'm oh, sorry. Her, I was going to say her voice is so distinct. I don't know if, you, if you've seen Gravity Falls, but anything that she's in where it's just, it's her voice is so, so recognizable immediately. Yeah, nice. no, absolutely. She plays, I believe, Mabel in yep, Gravity Falls. Sister. And uh, yeah, no, that's a fun series too. Didn't watch it this week. Uh, what else I watched though? Moving on to some movie type stuff. I watched a couple uh, horror short films because... Like, sometimes it's hard for me to get people to agree to watch, like, a full-length horror film for me, so I'll try and sneak in a short film throughout my day. Um, So, anyway, I watched uh, a science fiction horror short film called Decommissioned that's a pretty recent release. It's only about six minutes long. Uh, But I really enjoyed it. I'd recommend looking it up. Uh, I think it's available on YouTube, if you're curious. But, anyway, it's called Decommissioned, 
it's kind of uh, like an in-space horror sort of thing. It captured some of the vibes that I liked from like uh, Event, Event Horizon. Oh, nice. If anyone's seen that. Oh, yeah. I love so, that movie. you know, it's only six minutes. So, you know, don't expect the same sort of uh, impact, but good fun. Nice. And then I, uh, nice. I also watched Lights Out, the short that mm. uh, inspired the actual Lights Out movie. And that one I really enjoyed. I think I actually enjoy the short significantly more than the movie. It's it's not it's not a brand new one like Decommissioned, but uh, it is definitely available on YouTube if you want to go watch it. So go check out Lights Out if you haven't seen it or if you've seen the movie and and you know enjoyed it. The short is uh, just kind of bite sized and it contains like a lot of what made the movie great in that in that little bite. Uh, nice. Do you have strong opinions on the movie? um i have opinions on the movie honestly i only saw the movie once which was it's uh opening night in theaters and it's kind of hard to get like a real deep takeaway when in that, that kind of environment because you're like you're so excited to be there and the yeah. audience is reacting and you know like i enjoyed insidious i enjoyed the conjuring so you know i went to see lights out and it was just like a bit more like bread and butter like pg-13 style horror like it was enjoyable i had a good time with the movie i think that for me the short is more impactful because it's just all the all the best parts of the movie but like in a couple minutes so that that, that's that's my feelings on lights out i don't feel like the movie did like a terrible injustice to the short or anything um it's just it's not gonna be like in my like all-time greats horror movie list yeah at least not if i wrote it today in the short um (laughs) And then last thing I want to touch on, and this one's going to be a divisive one. This is a full-length film that I think... I I can't imagine anyone who listens to this podcast not having seen this film. But I rewatched Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of opinions about the prequels. I want to go on record as saying I really like the prequels. And I yeah, think they've me too. aged really well. Um, I think there are a lot of really valid criticisms of them. I don't think the dialogue's written that well. Um, I, I think that some of the plot points uh, are either like compressed too much or dragged out too long. Um, but the prequels, I think, are the best on-screen soap opera I've ever seen. And this rewatch of The Phantom Menace really cemented that for me. You know, like the movies, like... It's got political drama. It's got like upheaval that's like centered around trade rights and whatnot. Um, if you ever read like a lot of like science fiction space opera, if you've read uh, some of like Dan Simmons' books, some of Peter Hamilton's books, some of Ian Banks' books, then I think that there's nothing that really kind of captures that like big, large scale movements in space vibe as Star Wars Episode One, at least nothing I've seen. If there's some like really great space opera movie out there uh, that a viewer thinks I should have seen, please leave a comment about it um, because I, I, I've been searching for that vibe and you know, Star Wars Episode One's the only thing I found that itches it very effectively. There's, I mean, there's some TV stuff too, but I want to film, I want a budget. Yeah, you know? I was thinking, I can only think of TV series that I feel like kind of do that that kind of paint you this big social picture, which, you know, obviously that's hard because you're talking about space, right? You got millions of planets. 
Well, good. I'm glad that you like episode one. Stay strong, Hank. Don't let anybody <laughs> tell you that Jar Jar ruins everything. Don't let anyone get you down. Episode one rules. I mean, I have a bone to pick with the whole hate on Jar Jar thing. Not really the hate itself. Like, I can understand not liking the character, not really liking the sort of accent dialect they chose for him. I get all those things. I think they're totally, totally valid. But what I will say is, like, if you've seen episode one recently, you know he doesn't have that much screen time. Like, maybe more than he should. But, like, if that ruined the whole movie for you, I'm like, what were you doing for the other, like, two hours? I don't know. He's comedic relief. That's all he is. And that's, I mean, to be fair, that's how he should have stayed, right? I think, you know, a seat as a senator is a little far. (laughs) Yeah, that I agree. I agree. Have you, there's a video of uh, when George Lucas was showing, like, a final cut to a bunch of his um, like film friends, and I have this—it's like a video you can look. I think it's on YouTube, I know what you're talking about. and it's in his like his like giant in-home theater. And then there's all these famous directors. I feel like Steven Spielberg's there, right? And they're all just sitting there, and it, you're you can you can watch the whole thing or just the last bit right after it ends, and it's silent. The lights come up on the room. Everybody turns and looks at George, and George says, "I may have gone too far in a few places." <laughs> that was his first yeah. reaction to tell people. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I get that. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I just one it, thing. I know that we're gonna do potentially more like Star Wars reviews if, if there's more, you know, Book of Boba Fett, more Mandalorian stuff. I kind of want to go against that a little bit. I think the prequels are fun to watch, but I think they're pure, for better or for worse, just unfiltered, unadulterated Lucas. And I think there's a point where a man should have to have limiters on himself. And I think, unfortunately, yeah. well, I, I look back on them fondly just because I was young during the time, but I think. Like, the things that were introduced in the prequel series are so good when they're put in the right hands. And I think that's, like, what contributes to Mandalorian being so good is because you have these, like, elements. You you have Maul. You have, like, the war on Mandalore. All these just crazy things that I think Lucas just threw crap at the wall and wanted to see what would stick. But if you have, like, Dave Filoni and John Favreau, like, very skilled filmmakers and showrunners that are running it, I think that's kind of, like, the filters that George needed at the time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the original trilogy, right? It was his wife yep. and other people that did all the editing and directing and everything that I, I think were, like, you can't take it away from him because he built the, the scaffolding on which to, like, build these films and everything. Yeah. But I, there was definitely people that were keeping George in check in the original trilogy that you definitely lost for the new ones. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I think these are valid criticisms of the prequel twi- trilogy. But I don't think they devalue the prequel trilogy in a, in a way that a lot of the internet would want you to believe. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I will happily watch the prequel trilogy if it's put on for me. You know, yeah. I'm not going to complain about that ever. But anyway, let's try and get away from Star Wars for a minute because uh, we got a whole movie to review. But uh, Taylor, what did you watch this week? Uh, let's see. So I watched um, The Devil's House, which I was pretty disappointed in. It's it's a horror film. Um, it's shot in this real like 80s vintage vibe. Like in the opening credits, the main actress, um, she'll like they'll freeze the shot as they put up certain names. So it's like real, real 80s. And that, it was it was good. Um, the the dialogue is it's okay they're going for this real informal dialogue where you get a lot of ums and buts and characters talking over each other and that was okay and then they start to introduce the plot and you see these people right off the bat that are clearly scary and weird and then 
They're, those are just the scary people the whole time. Everything happens exactly like you thought it would. Nothing interesting sticks out. So a little disappointed. And then this weekend, um, I went to the ocean, stayed at a cabin, feeling the real sea spray cloudy vibe. So we watched The Secret of Rona Nish, which I had never seen before. Um, but if you don't know, it's set on a little tiny island off Ireland. It's probably in like the 1920s, I think. Um, and there's all sorts of Irish mystical stuff, people turned into animals and whatever. And it's, I think it's sort of a kid's film, but really, really good, really enjoyable. Um, and then that got us kind of in the Irish mood. So then we watched Bloody Sunday because today is the, we're recording on the 31st. So that's 49 years to the day since the Bloody Sunday wow. massacre. So I thought about not watching it for another year so we can, <laughs> I could uh, talk about it in uh of this podcast a year from now but just went ahead and watched it and that was a really really interesting movie if you haven't seen it they um this is gonna this is gonna sound bad but it's it's sort of shot in like the same way they shot the office kind of this over the shoulder look with these quick cuts and uh and i think they did it that way because they splice in real footage from the massacre so and they and they do it in such a way that you can't tell what's real footage and what's stuff they've recreated and i think they wanted those quick cuts to make it feel more natural but it um they didn't really fully embrace it so it felt a little clunky in the beginning when nothing's happening and you're like why are we cutting in the middle of these two characters having a normal conversation but um yeah it was really 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 good and actually one of those films i won't say which one but one of those films is going to be the uh, the inspiration for the film we're going to watch next week, and I will tell you guys, I'll reveal it to you at the end of the oh podcast, so you'll get to oh you'll man, get to wonder. I'm, I'm looking forward to that now. I, we'll, we'll get into it when you introduce <laughs> the movie, but uh, I'm excited. But our film for this week, The White Tiger. So Keegan, you recommended this. Do you do you want to give like a little kind of summary of what it is in a sentence or two? Yeah. Um, so uh, basically, this is what this is the biggest movie that came out this week. Um, again, this is like an away week. It is a movie based on a New York Times bestseller that is about a uh, kind of lowly cast Indian man who is kind of born into servitude. Um, as he says throughout the movie, he was born to be a servant, essentially, and had that bred into him. Um, through happenstance, he finds himself in the position of being a driver for a very rich family. Um, he's the driver for the youngest son, and that youngest son has spent a lot of time in America, and him and his new wife are back in India. Um, and essentially, we, we follow him throughout the kind of adventures of, of being the driver for the family, and also we see a lot of political intrigue. Um, it's basically just kind of a movie that exists to cast a lot of light on the different caste systems and kind of societal structure of India um, in current day. So... Um, very prescient, very kind of interesting movie. I'm curious to hear what you guys think about it. So let's start off with some non-spoiler uh, activity, which I think we can do a pretty a pretty decent job yeah. of. Um, so, Hank, what was your initial reaction? How did what was your takeaway when you finished the movie? How'd you feel about it? You glad you watched it? Did you enjoy yourself? Yeah. So right off the bat, glad I watched it. I'd say I enjoyed myself, um, though. I wanted to say that first because I'm about to backtrack to a less positive place, <laughs> which is that when the movie was first introduced, I wasn't like, ah, shit, I don't want to watch that or anything. But I wasn't exactly excited about it just because looking up the movie, the first thing you see is like 
a, a drama film or a satirical drama film. And I'm not a huge drama guy, honestly. Like, I, I've seen some drama films I like. I watch drama films that I want to talk about. But in general, I find, like, drama films are there to, like, say something to me, but not really there to entertain me. And I'm like, you can say something to me, but I want you to entertain me as well. You know, if I'm mm. going to sit myself down in front of a TV for a couple hours, like, I want to be entertained, at least a little. And it doesn't need to be, like, a fun entertainment. It can be like, a, oh, no, that's so, like, exhilarating and terrible to look at type entertainment. But I want a little bit of it. And so I saw drama, and I was like, uh, is this going to be like slow and heavy and I'm going to walk away from it being like I didn't have any fun at all and the white tiger I had fun watching you know like it, it, it is firmly rooted in the genre like I didn't enjoy it because it had crossovers from action or horror or anything I enjoyed it because of how the film was made which was it, it, it was a drama with a little bit of a it like I wouldn't call it like a dramedy like, it wasn't, like, a drama that was so infused with comedy that that became a main genre descriptor. But the guy narrating it and the main character in the film had a definite kind of sense of humor about the world and about life. Um, and even, like, in the scenes where he got down, like, there's, there's usually something on either side of it that was kind of fun to watch. So, like, I was still able to get the low moments in his life without just feeling like I did during um, Picture of a Woman where I just felt terrible and more terrible from scene to scene. So anyway, I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. um, I thought there was it was nice to have some little like fun laughy bits. Um, and I didn't expect to enjoy it, which made enjoying it that much more sweet. Nice. Uh, Keegan, same to you. Did you, are you glad you watched it? Are you glad you recommended it for us and our listeners? Yeah, I'm glad I watched it. Um, I think uh, I expected to like it a little bit more than I did. And part of that is, you know, Thinking about it, the movie is actually bookended by a statement directly breaking the fourth wall that actually was addressed directly to me and many other people, and that is the main character looking directly at the, the, the camera and saying, this is the century of the yellow and brown man. So I expected from the get-go with that being kind of our, our interlude into it that this would be something that I thought was really funny and really interesting. Um, I enjoyed it. I think it was a really good movie. Um, incredibly well acted. You could tell that this was based on some really interesting source material. Um, I always kind of enjoy movies, you know, similarly to a lot of Korean thrillers that hold up a light to, you know, different parts of societies that I may not know anything about. You know, I've, I've obviously never been to India. I don't know much about Indian society outside of the general caste system and that it exists but very little about you know how that plays out in, in day-to-day life. So I think I expected to enjoy it a little bit more. Um, ultimately, I think it's, it's a very good movie, but it's a movie that has some serious, serious pacing issues that I think unfortunately did keep me from enjoying it much more than I expected to. Um, and I think we can get this in, in spoilers a little bit more, but one thing that I kind of want to ask you guys before we get into some other thoughts is, do you guys tend to watch trailers? I think that's important to establish beforehand because if you, if you do watch trailers before watching a movie, I think this is a movie where the trailer does give away a significant plot point that would kind of affect you going into it. Interesting. No, I, I try not to watch trailers just for that very reason. Okay. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Like, I won't, like, turn off a trailer if it comes on during an ad break, but I've, I never look up a trailer. Yeah. Um, and if I don't have to watch one, like, I won't click on the link if it's in front of me. Okay, fair yeah. enough. So we'll we'll consider you guys the unsullied lifestyle from here on out if you, if you tend to avoid them. But, yeah, I, I think I went into it looking for the trailer and just hunting through different new releases and unfortunately had some pretty big things spoiled for me. Um, so this is definitely a movie that if you are going to watch, I, I would recommend it, but I would recommend going in blind. <laughs> 
That's interesting. Well, I I like the movie a lot. I think I'm kind of the same boat as you guys. I like the movie a lot. Um, I I wanted to like it a lot more because I saw a bunch of things that they touched on that I wanted them to hammer home more. And so there's there's a the movie tries to do a lot, right? There's a bunch of subplots or, or a bunch of concepts or themes or moods we bring up that we don't just by the nature of having five of them that we're juggling at any time we don't really get to pay a lot of attention to most of them so there were a couple that i thought were most interesting and uh I, we can talk about those when we get to spoilers but i it almost i wouldn't say it ruined the movie at all i still enjoyed the movie a lot like we, you guys said the acting is i think off the charts really 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 good from everybody um the dialogue's great but I just kept wanting them to spend more time on things that they just brushed over. Uh, so that was that was frustrating for me, and we spent more time on things that I wasn't so interested in. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I liked the movie. Glad I watched it. And I think they accomplished something really challenging, which is to make a movie pretty firmly set in the present, to be a product of its time, to capture real things that are happening um, in, in, in real time. I think usually movies aren't good at that. When they try to do it, they're... You know, if you if you've lived through the event, you always see, well, here's all the other stuff that no one knew was a big deal then, but comes up later. And, and I think they did a really, really good job. So, mm. yeah, definitely would recommend it. Yeah. And so I'm curious. So Taylor, I don't want to put you on the spot. So, I mean, your partner has spent a fair amount of time working in India, and I think you have a, a probably more knowledge than, well, I don't know about Hank, but certainly more knowledge about Indian society than myself. Um, but I'm curious. I've heard some people speaking about Slumdog Millionaire in kind of derogatory terms and i think it's a movie that unfortunately has some pretty direct comparisons to this i think there's a pretty cheeky bit of dialogue um where the main character in the white tiger says there's you know i'm stuck in this position in my cast there's not you know a million dollar game show that i'm going to win to get out of this um and i unfortunately you know i think this is a movie that is very much more so than danny boyle's slumdog millionaire like made for an american audience i think there's a lot of explaining about you know here's the state of india there's men with fat bellies men with skinny bellies having all these kind of metaphors to set up like what the caste system is like, how these people live their lives. Um, and it just felt very skewed towards an American audience. Whereas I think myself, I would have preferred to be just put in the shoes of these people's lives and maybe have a little bit less exposition. Cause it, it does take up a considerable, considerable amount of the runtime, just explaining a lot of this stuff. Um, and so I'm curious, do you guys, you know, unfortunately it does invite comparison because I think that's, you know, on for most Western audiences mind, I think that's the big last Indian movie that attacks these kind of societal subjects that that they would know of and i personally am you know big danny boyle fan i really love slumdog millionaire i think there's some valid criticisms from the indian community that you know it wants to attack these very large um, issues but also you know kind of indulges and breaks into these dance dance sequences from time to time and, and doesn't really take them as seriously as it should so personally i you know again i don't know how fair it is to compare the two i much preferred that i think that this movie by comparison, I think it was thinking it was a little bit smarter than it was by bringing that into light. But I think ultimately I didn't enjoy it as much as I did Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, I mean, I we I don't think we can help but compare them because the movie, like you said, directly calls out Slumdog Millionaire, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think I've, I think it, it might have been um, the director, um, Barani, but I mean, I think he said this is like a response to Slumdog mm -hmm. Millionaire, right? So I think you got to compare them, and you know what you said about my my partner having lived and worked in India and she still does um I like I have a lot more knowledge about India than I used to before I met her but I also there's still so much I don't know that I don't 
that I think is entirely a cultural context that I, I probably will never get, right? Even if I live there the rest of my life, I think I probably won't get it. There's like a saying I've heard before that anything you can say about India that is true is also not true hmm. because it's such a big country with such a, a huge diversity of language, religion, uh, cultures. You know, there's there's things that may be 100% true in one place that are not at all true in another place. Um, and like, here's like a little example. So the the... The, dr the man that um, our star drives for in the movie, his name's Ashok. Um, and, you know, knowing a little bit of India history, I know of Ashok the Great that built this big empire. Um, and there's, I saw themes of that in this, in this main character. Um, but Ashok's also a pretty common name in India, right? So I don't know if the average, you know, Indian audience member watching this at all thinks of Ashok the Great and what that, where that name came from. Maybe it even comes before him. I don't know at all. So, like, I don't know if having a little bit of context actually does me many favors mm -hmm. because it's just, it's so complex. It's so nuanced. And I think they did not necessarily a really good job of telling the truth and, like, portraying reality, but I think they did a really good job of showing how certain people are, are think of what's going on in India right now. Think of these massive shifts that are happening um, demographically, culturally, um, and I th and this this guy, our our, our main guy, um, Balram, I feel like I've met guys like him, like like to their personality, demeanor, just in how much they really really want to succeed, how much they really want, how, how driven they are, and how polite they are. At the same token, I mean, it's like, it's interesting. It's it's really really interesting because I I felt like I knew this guy right off the bat, and obviously. I don't know him. I don't know all the context of his life and everything he's done, but I kind of have this uh, mental model of, of this character and the movie matched it perfectly. So um, that's kind of what I was talking about, about how they're able to create something really in the present because, you know, from my very distant, very limited view, this seemed to echo a lot of things that I already thought or, you know, had intuitions about. Hank, what about you? Yeah, so I don't have as much of an insight into like Indian culture history as Taylor does, even. And and you know, I'm I'm not saying Taylor's an expert, but you know, just I I grew up in Definitely Seattle. Definitely not. <laughs> um, you know, I I I've, I've met some some Indian people throughout my life, but never been that close with anyone. So anyway, I, I don't have any particular insight or knowledge into the the culture or the the geography or the history of the region this film is portraying. So for me, I actually kind of liked the fact that they went to a lot of effort to explain why the main character, Balram, was thinking about things the way he was thinking about things. Like in the, in the, the voiceover narration, he kind of says, like, in India, you know, this happens because of this. And so... You know that kind of like explains his next action so i thought it was kind of helpful to me as like a relatively uneducated viewer in indian culture um but i could imagine being someone other than me who knew more than like the absolute bare minimum of indian culture that might find it kind of kind of pandering and, and boring you know like if you already were kind of familiar with some of the ideas and the philosophies that were tossed around during the film I could imagine some of the kind of like explanation in the voiceover kind of taking you out of it, you know, kind of you being like, yeah, I get it, but let's get to what's happening. Cause you know, it's, it's, it's the, what you're thinking that is interesting to me more than, than the why in some cases. Mm -hmm. 
So anyway, I personally really enjoyed a lot of those aspects of the film where they're talking about India, they're talking about some of the attitudes there. I thought it was really helpful to me as a viewer, actually. But I could understand being a viewer that instead found it to be more pandering. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. And I guess so from so before oh, you, sorry, I was gonna say oh, so go from, ahead. from that perspective as well, I think it brings up a good point, right? Like you're <clears throat> I think so much of what people want in, in diversity and casting and also like behind the camera as well is, you know, being able to have storytellers that understand these things and so, you know, the director is, is Indian and so being able to have someone who creatively has that voice that can, you know, hopefully get that into the film is pretty valuable and I think also like bringing up the comparison to Slumdog Millionaire you know Danny Boyle being a British filmmaker I think there's a lot of kind of contention between the background you know still between you know British and Indian culture so it's definitely like a different lens that you're seeing it through so I definitely do feel like you're getting a, a pretty authentic view of, of Indian society through the eyes of, of an Indian individual so that's definitely something that, that I really appreciate as well thinking back on the comparison yeah yeah and you know, before we go into spoilers, um, I think I think so. It sounds like we can all give a pretty broad endorsement of the movie. Like, if you want to learn more about India, if you want an interesting story, it'll it'll get you there. Yeah, and I I think that like you know Netflix is definitely stepping it up in the the in house department. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. 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 No, I I thought all the productions seemed great. Um, you know, I I don't know exactly how much Netflix contributed to the production of the film, or if they're just distributing mm-hmm. it. Um, Keegan, do you know? I no, I, I have no idea. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I I thought that the movie felt authentic, and that, to me at least, can often earn an endorsement. So. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, let's let's get into spoilers. Let's talk about some of the more interesting plot devices, some of the interesting twists and turns. I saw. So I will. I'll, I'll start off, um, and I kind of want to. I want to ask you guys what. So right off the bat, we have narration, right? That's like one of the central pieces of the film is an older Balram. It's it's unclear how much time has passed, but some sort of time because his hair is longer than in the beginning of the movie. Um, he's he's narrating things to us, and that remains throughout the whole movie from you know the first scene to the last scene. So that's our kind of first uh, structure of the movie we get. How did you guys feel about the narration? When, you know, when it first started and kind of as it progressed throughout the movie. Ooh, I want to talk to this one. Um, Go because ahead. I actually had very mixed feelings here. I actually quite enjoyed the narration style and like a lot of the scenes where they cut to Balram as the narrator, you know, his kind of future self. I, I, I kind of enjoyed it as a device. Um, and, I, and I thought actually a lot of the exposition it provided, especially early on, was pretty helpful to me as a viewer. But... I don't know exactly when it occurred, maybe about halfway through the movie, maybe about three quarters of the way through the movie. There were a couple sequences where it was a little bit difficult to tell if it was like narrator ballroom speaking or if it was present day ballroom speaking. And I felt like there were just kind of a a few fumbles with the narration device where it became like a little bit too intertwined with the story that was progressing. And it didn't exactly feel like narration. It felt like... I don't know. It, it, it felt like there are things getting explained that should have been shown, and there are th- things being shown that I felt could have fit into the narration. I felt like the, I don't know. I, I I liked the idea of using it. I liked the way it was executed for a lot of the movie, but I feel like there was some point later in the film where the device of narration itself kind of fell apart for me. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Keegan, how do you I, feel? So I liked it as well. So this is something that was is in the trailer. And, you know, right off the bat from the trailer, you see that there's a sequence where, you know, Priyanka Chopra is driving the car and that they hit someone. It doesn't identify who was hit or how much it's going to play into the plot. But obviously, it's a pretty big plot point. So when you're watching the movie, I think within the first five minutes, you see a recreation of that scene where she hits someone. I don't again, I don't think you know that it's a child when you're in the, the opening, but you see that. And then you see like a rich older Balram writing his email to the Chinese statesman. So I was like, holy shit, buckle up, you know, boom, boom, boom. We're getting all these framing devices right up front. Like this is going to mm-hmm. be fast. It's going to be like, you know, we're going in quickly and, you know, buckle up because it's, it's, it's starting right now. And I think the narration was good. It, I think it like introduced a lot of that. But unfortunately, kind of like Hank said, I think it started to fizzle out about like within the second act. And I think there are certain things that were just like, it was maybe mismatched a little bit with what was was happening on screen. So, like another instance is later in the movie where you know Balram gets his revenge and you know kills his driver or you know the person that he drives for. All of this was telegraphed out way way before, and I guess I can't say definitively that those things were called out purely visually. I think like by the time that we're driving in the rain and you know there's four million rupees in the car, like you are very aware that this person's gonna die. And I just wish that a little bit more of that was shown visually of like, you know, him looking at the bag versus saying like, I could not stop looking at the red bag and very clearly calling out to the audience that this is gonna be a very important plot point, that this bag is gonna be what gets Balram out of poverty. And you know, obviously we know, or if you're kind of an informed viewer, you're thinking like, he's going to have to get this bag somehow. It ostensibly <laughs> means he has to kill the people who have the money, right? Like he's not just going to take this from yeah. the great socialist or from his, his, his master. So I think it's, it's all very telegraphed out. And unfortunately I wish a little bit of it was transitioned out of exposition and, and more like kind of, uh, I guess it flowed a little better into the other aspects of, you know, narrative storytelling. Yeah. There, there was, I, Go ahead. Oh, there's one other thing about the narration too that made it a little bit confusing to me, with it kind of flowing in and out of the storytelling as like a, a, a primary driver. But uh, early yes. on in the film, he's narrating his story. Like actually, not early on. At the very beginning of the film, Ballroom is narrating his story, and he says something along the lines of, "Oh no, this is no place to start a story." Mm-hmm. And then we kind of cut into him writing his email to the premier of China. And for me, that was difficult because I really couldn't tell if the narration was him speaking directly to the audience narrating and like the letter was a part of that narration or if the narration was all the written text of his letter to the premier of China. And then when the narration started getting more entangled with the plot, it became a little bit difficult for me because I tended to think it was all the literal written text of his letter. So it becoming entangled with the plot kind of, I thought a lot of the movie was like kind of believable in a way. Like you listen to the story and you're like, okay, yeah, this feels like someone telling a story, but then like him telling these incredibly incriminating and personal details yeah. in parts of the movie where it becomes entwined with the plot. It really forced me to really engage my suspension of disbelief in those moments because it wasn't clear if the letter was telling exactly what was happening in the film or if it was some sort of a quoted device. Yeah, and there's, you know, I I guess I should have said that the whole narration is seemingly a part of this email he's writing to the, the Chinese premiere, the guy before um, the current one. And um, 
but at the same time when we we're having these scenes that are narration we also get these i don't know what to call them they're not like um they're sort of imagined scenes that ballroom's imagining of his family getting killed um generally of like terrible violence that he thinks is going to happen to him as a result of his actions um and so at, at the beginning it seems like pretty clear this is him imagining this is reality um and then as as right what you guys were saying kind of in the second act they begin to happen with such like or they happen at, at certain points where there is other stuff going on that it's unclear on if this is actually happening or not and at first i was a little bit you know confused and didn't think it was working but then i kind of felt like and hank i want your opinion on this since you've read more stuff like this than i have but it kind of reminded me of sort of that that russian dostoevsky unreliable narrator right that we don't even know if anything this guy's been telling us is true at all we don't know what's happening but they didn't really lean into that enough so i don't think that's what was they were trying to do but it that's just sort of how confusing the narration got to me was like i i, I wondered if they were purposely trying to make it confusing so that we questioned balram and whether he was telling us the audience the truth because he does break that fourth wall so he is aware of us uh, yeah um i'm actually kind of glad you brought that up uh, specifically the scenes of Ballroom's family getting killed. Because I, the first time I saw it happening, I thought it was a literal event that Ballroom was saying yep. had occurred at some yep. point in the body of his email. And I didn't manage to shake off that feeling in the rest of the storytelling, even though Ballroom himself said, like, it could really never be known what actually happened there. But anyway, I... To respond to what you were saying, Taylor, about like having read literature with unreliable narrators, I love an unreliable narrator in literature. Um, I think a great example is uh, is a bit less literary than uh, Dostoevsky, but uh, by Daniel Lewski, there's a horror novel called House of Leaves that deals with someone making annotations throughout the course of a screenplay. And, that, and uh, hmm. it, it actually kind of reads a bit like this movie because the annotations are in the first person, but the screenplay is, is you know, like a, a movie format. But so, uh, or actually not in a screenplay, but in a scene-by-scene a, a -scene review of a film. But anyway, hmm. th but in that unreliable narrator scenario, at first all of the annotations seem to be describing literal thoughts and events that have been happening to the, happening to the character. But by the end of the novel, you're like, oh is there any way these are describing literal events because it seems to be describing things that cannot possibly have happened but describing them in the same way that it described things we accepted as literal events earlier and i thought hmm. it was very effective in that book and in this movie i found myself having kind of a similar thing with the the scenes of the killing of his family like at first i'm like is this a literal event but later on i was thinking you know like can we trust this as a literal event because he's saying we can't yeah, I just felt yeah. like in the film it was a bit clumsier if it was mm -hmm. intended. It, it it almost felt unintended is the thing to me. Like it seemed like the 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 creator of the movie might have meant that that was just literally happening, and because of the way it was framed in the film, it, it seemed to the audience like it might not have been. But that was never the creator's intention, so it mm. felt more almost kind of clumsy to me than clever. And that could just be my my reading as a viewer uh but yeah. th that, that was that was kind of the issue i had with it was that it didn't it didn't really make me it didn't make me think about the actual thoughts running through the character's head it was just making me trying to parse what the movie was trying to tell me 
Yeah, you were trying. I think I was doing the exact same thing where I was trying to figure out what was going on and then trying to explain to myself why certain things were happening. So I had to think this guy could potentially be an unreliable narrator. But you're right. I don't think there's anything the movie ever does that is trying to purposefully give us that intent. Okay. Well, uh, Keegan, did you have any thoughts about the whether he's an unreliable narrator? Anything else about the big topic of narration, or do we want to go on to some of the other themes and happenings? Of the yeah. Movie? I, so one of the things I guess is that I think, and I guess I don't I don't want to be too much of an apologist for the movie. I think I actually liked it the least of the three of us. But I kind of interpreted this as, you know, it's someone who is espousing the events of the past year or so, and I think the areas where he's kind of cast the most unfavorably or the things that he has to you know feel the most guilty about are the areas where we're like oh is this reality or not and so i i kind of interpret it as like is this the way that he just kind of you know gets by is thinking like maybe this happened maybe it didn't playing out the different scenarios in his head because you know at first when you see the situation of the masters they have him you know shooting him at gunpoint against a wall later you have some like super graphic killings of like holding his brother and his grandmother down and beating their heads in with bricks. So I kind of interpret it as like, you know, the events that are good and like just his day to day, they're relatively trustworthy. The, you know, at some point he had to work for these people, go through these events and get to a point where he had the money to start up his own company and, you know, bribe the police. I believe the kind of small arcs of that, but the larger events of like, he, he hasn't spoken to his family in a very long time. I think it's, it's, you know, said that he hasn't, spoken to his family since his nephew shows up um, and he gets that letter so i think like his guilt really like you know distorts the way that he views these happenings in his mind and i kind of took it as like that's you know he's kind of envisioning these worst case scenarios just to make himself be like that's what happened they died but certain you know to get out of your cast you have to sacrifice certain certain things you you may have to kill your master your family may pass away but those are the things you have to do even though it's never explicitly said yeah and uh, yeah that that kind of brings up one of the other big themes of the movie that I was especially drawn to, which was this idea that, that Balram had of in order to break out of the old system, you know, the system of people that have fat bellies and people that have thin bellies, this it's, it's, you know, it's, it's referencing caste, but it's also just referencing income generally. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to do something bad to get out of that. And then the question is, okay, but, did he have a choice, right? Like, is the situation so bad that you have to do something bad to get out of it? And he seemed to think you Mm -hmm. did. That's like clearly his takeaway and the audience can decide. But I I know we're going to jump ahead, but I think it's so important for this theme, which was my favorite of the movie, which is that last scene. That last scene, he's narrating again. Everything has been resolved. He's built his own big business. Um, and then he's talking to the camera and he's stand all his taxi drivers are standing behind him and he ends and he and he walks away and all the taxi drivers stare at us and there's this at least the thought i had was are they going to break into a dance or not because no but because singing and dancing is a huge part of bollywood yeah. it's it's in every single type of genre of movie you can imagine which would actually be interesting is there i don't know but maybe there's some uh, bollywood horror films out there that have singing and dance numbers in an otherwise normal horror film but um and it, it was sort of this moment where they're all staring at us and it's like they know that we're wondering if they're going to break into song and dance right there's this tension of will they or won't they um and then they i, I won't spoil what they what they do or not but 
that sort of that seemed to represent the entire theme of fighting against the past and i'm going to make a new future not rooted in the philosophy of the past not rooted in the culture of the past i'm going to do it a different way i'm not going to be a dick i'm not going to have people that are my servants and i'm their master and i just thought that that we only we get we get the most exposition of that in that those last what five minutes where it's just him giving us all this exposition narrating over everything sh scenes of him showing stuff um, but to me, that was the most powerful theme in the whole movie. That was the most powerful story the movie was telling was this clash with modernity India's having, having and where people like Balram are in it and how they view it and how they're trying to interact with it. And I was sort of disappointed that while we're getting through the second act, just kind of like you guys were saying, it gets real messy because we got a bunch of ideas, a bunch of themes we're trying to get through in addition to this whole murder plot. And so we don't get to pay much as much time on it as I wanted. But that was definitely my favorite theme. I don't know if you guys thought, thought of that theme as well when you were watching it or if you had any other thoughts or if you didn't like that theme at all and want to talk about it differently. Yeah, actually, so I actually want to jump on to one of the points you made earlier about Balram. The way he runs his business is that he's running against the confines of the past, like you said. And I think that is a really interesting plot point in terms of Pinky. And Pinky's a character that I hated. I was surprised that I, I think that you know Priyanka Chopra. I don't think I've seen her act in much, but I was you know when you really hate a character, you know that it's a good role and they're doing their job well. And I really think she was the most unlikable character in the entire movie. But I think she had this constant clash of right, like something that I think personally I've dealt with a lot of. You know, I'm a second generation immigrant. My dad came over from Vietnam when he was five. It was a very long time ago. I'm very removed from Vietnamese culture. I don't speak. And these are these kind of things that like you know when you reapproach your culture you can unfortunately see a lot of things that you don't like reflected back in it. And I think like Pinky is a very, very interesting kind of microscope on reapproaching your culture and seeing the things that go against what you've known since she was 12 years old and she's lived in New York. Um, so I think like she is the greatest example of, of that plot, of that kind of narrative arc of, you know, kind of disavowing the things that, that Indian culture has for her. And I think it was really interesting that she chooses to remove herself from the entire situation. And it becomes too much of, she doesn't like the way the servants are treated. She doesn't like the way that they push the blame to him when, you know, she commits a murder. So she just kind of removes herself and divorces herself, which is, you know, divorce is not a big thing in, in South Asia. Um, and it's, it's so painful that when Balram brings it up to Ashok, he, you know, he's like, I've, I've never heard of a woman divorcing her husband. And he freaks out. And that's one of the first times that he actually hits him and, and slaps him when you think that, you know, this may be a friendly relationship. So that kind of like old versus new Indian of like Indians that have made so much that they can get out and they can go to America and have this kind of new Western lifestyle that's, you know, likely a little bit more liberal leaning and then you move back. And there's so much of kind of the structure of, of looking down on people that have less than you um, was really interesting to me. So I, I think her arc in that was was one of my favorite parts, despite not liking her character at all. Yeah, I I I loved her character in that. I thought she I thought uh, Priyanka Chopra did a great job with it for the exact same reason that she like she's so different, she's so Americanized, and she immediately falls back into what these these rich Indians are yeah. doing, right? Where they're you know she kills somebody in a car because she's drunk driving, she bribes the cops, you know she she runs from her problems like she's she's so different, and in a lot of ways that really matter, she's exactly yep. the same. I, I loved when she character. she shames him. And she's you know your shirt looks terrible, your outfit's disgusting, your breath smells of pond, and you know as soon as the woman leaves and she's kind of shown that she can put the servants in her place, she's right back to being this kind of like matriarchal figure to Balram, and it it feels mm -hmm. very deceptive and it feels very kind of manipulative. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and at the end, she never escapes. Right. Yeah. Because right before Ashok is killed, he says she's, she wants me to come to New York. She wants to like make up. So she never, she doesn't, at least as far as we know, never gets out of it. Yeah. Hank, Hank, what did you think about that, that kind of theme of, of modernity clashing with, with men like Balram? Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. You know, I, I, I definitely enjoyed its inclusion, though I had some reservations about its its effectiveness and kind of like the delivery of why. Um, and actually, I think that the Pinky comparison to Ballroom, you know, Ballroom running his business, uh, Pinky being uh, someone that's grown up in America, is kind of why I had an issue with it. Hmm. Um, so Pinky, you know, she's gone to America, but she comes back and she finds that, you know, though she's so far removed from this culture, she's acting in a lot of the same ways. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she's kind of drawn back into it. But then on the other hand, Ballroom, you know, like does some bad things, but in the end comes out and he's, you know, treating his taxi drivers seemingly quite well. He's acting quite good to the people around him. Yeah it seems like he's almost effortlessly or not, I don't know, effort, like the movie's kind of his effort, but he kept pretty easily kind of shrugs up, shrugs off the past and invents his new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really shown like what enabled him to run things that way. Cause you know, you, you tend to imagine, you know, if someone could easily run things in a more like humane way, like he seems to be doing in this sort of a business environment, like, you know, like what enables him to be the one person that does it, I'm not convinced that the movie kind of like develops him as this super like out for the good of others person. Like, I don't believe he's like some paragon of virtue yeah. necessarily because, you know, he's shown yeah. to murder a man. And then he still bribes for, the cops, too. Yeah, yeah he still bribes he's the, treating bribes the taxi the drivers. Right. But, but then Pinky, on the other hand, is shown to be completely incapable of breaking the mold. And there I'm also kind of like, why? You know, she's had, a, you know, why, why is he, despite showing no exceptional virtue, able to just so easily be like this kind of like idol within his community of, you know, like treating his drivers well. And Pinky is completely unable to break the mold despite, you know, growing up in America, having like an education that seems to have included some sort of like ethics courses or something. I thought yeah. it wasn't that I had a problem with either of those things happening. I thought that those two things happening concurrently kind of muddied whatever the the central plot or the central like purpose of that theme was. Yeah. Uh, and, I don't know. You do you know guys that... have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that was my, that was kind of like my great uh, lament of the movie was that that story of how he overcomes the past, right? Of how he's able to fight against all the incentives allied against him. That is what I thought would be the interesting story, right? I still want to see him do the potentially bad thing to get there, right? But I, Keegan, I was right with you. I was ready for buckle up. Yeah. Shit's about to get real. We're talking to the Chinese premiere. We're robbing millions of rupees, which isn't that much money, but like I, I was ready for that to all happen in the first act and then to see him really deal with how to make this work, how to how to make his life the way he wants it. And we don't see that. We just get the last five minutes of after he does the big bad thing to be able to get his life going, he just all it's all done. N yeah, nice bow exactly. on it. And that was that was a bit frustrating. Yeah, so I've, I mean, I, I definitely, and that plays into kind of why I dislike this movie so much. It's just because the pacing is so just atrocious as you kind of slog through the second arc, right? It's, you know, you have maybe 10 to 15 minutes of your first act, and then the second act is 
probably an hour and a half and I was watching it and I, yeah. I got up to like get some more snacks and I, I paused it and I'm like, oh my God, we're, we have 15 minutes left and he just killed Ashok. Like we have 15 minutes to put a nice bow on this. But I mean, just, you know, to step back and just talk about one of the things you said of like, you know, billions of rupees is not that much money. And I think whenever I watch these movies, you know, Korean movies, Indian movies, things that aren't set in America or in countries that use the US dollar. I, I usually keep my laptop out just to write notes in general, but I'll usually be like, oh, what's, he, he makes 2000 rupees a month. What is that in US dollars? And it is just abhorrent, the working conditions. It's like 40 bucks it's or $27 right? a month, which is <laughs> just, and he's, you know, he's only allowed to keep 200 of the 2000. So, you know, $2.7 and the rest he sends back to his village. It is just an absolute masterclass in checking your privilege and understanding like how, nice we have our lives and i was talking to carol while i was watching the movie and we were joking about like oh my god we spend you know hundreds of dollars on you know columbia jackets and like nice boots and outdoor stuff so we can go out and go hiking and live in the northwest and have this you know connection to nature and have that be part of identity where like the reality is that most people in in you know countries that don't have that kind of economic advantage have to live this shit every day and they have no choice and it sucks and they don't like it and it's like seeing the room that he's given at the first house where he has to share it with the muslim man you know and it's this tiny little room where he's gonna have to sleep on the ground it is it was just absolutely eye-opening and you know you see these things everyone's kind of tangentially aware that these are living conditions in other parts of the world but man what a just really really difficult reminder of the, like how you know, I don't want to downplay anyone's you know day-to-day -day struggles, but just how easy many of us have it compared to like the living conditions in a lot of the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. So just really tough on that front. And then you, just to go into like the response of that, I think the pacing really just has it really moves against the movie in, in negative ways. I think you have this really quick-paced intro where you're you're on board. Unfortunately, sorry to bring the comparison up again, but you, you have this young boy who lives in the slums and he's listening to people fart in the night. It's very similar to Slumdog Millionaire. You've seen this before. You're on you're on board to see this kind of develop, and then we have this very long middle arc where, you know, things happen for Shirley. Like you see Ashok go into depression. You see Pinky leave. There's obviously killing the child in the car accident, but ultimately i just do not think that there's enough to justify holding up an hour and a half of a second arc there and you know it's i was happy to watch it the cinematography is beautiful obviously and like you guys have said it's it's very well acted and written so when you're in kind of the minute to minute of it it's it's very enjoyable to watch but i just thinking of how little time we have to wrap this up it's like hey here's all the turmoil i go to go through and i'm going to wrap this up in 15 minutes i'm going to i'm going to go straight I'm going to like run my business ethically within the confines of the law. I figured it out. I, you know, I can barely read, but I got boom, boom, boom. I got this all figured out and I'm going to run my business. So, so much so that when the exact same thing happens, that was a life-changing event for me, the murder of a child in a car that I know completely how to fix this and go about it and do it in a way that paints me in a positive light where I hire someone yeah. out of it. I, I, it just felt very rushed and I wish that we would have kind of smoothed out those transitions a little bit more. And I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think th that... Oh, go ahead, Hank. Oh, I, I was going to say that I think that for me, kind of a, a clean way of saying a lot of what you just said is like the the intro, the super fast intro and the ending are like two caps of an incredibly compelling movie that I want to watch. Yep. And the central hour and a half, the kind of second act in the middle there is a movie that I want to watch. But 
it doesn't feel like the movie that is capped by the beginning and the end you know the beginning and the end i Mm -hmm. was expecting something i was expecting a story that got me from this point to this point and instead i got a story that got me from the first point to kind of a different point and i would have been interesting if the if the movie was supposed to be about those two points but the movie was about two points that were much further apart than what the middle section told Mm -hmm. me about like yeah Uh, and i think that was i my I think that was just because they tried to do too much. They have a lot of theme. I mean, like, let's look at the narration. Right? We haven't touched on half of the themes in this movie, but the narration is all towards this Chinese premiere. And you got you got to wonder, why do we need geopolitics in this? Yeah. Right? Like, what does it add to the story? How? Do, like, why couldn't it have just been to his grandmother years later and he's telling her, if she's still alive, how he got on, how he, what, what's he's been up to, right? Like, why do we need this? And then at the end... When he tries to meet the Chinese premier, he doesn't get to. The Chinese premier is like, you sent me an email? Yeah, I read all of my emails personally, and I'm ready for a meeting with you, right? So, like, I was like, are we trying to show that he's still ignorant of how the world works? Like, what? it just seemed that, you know, that 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 whole Chinese premier email was a microcosm of they're just put, trying to put too much in. And it could all be interesting in and of yeah. itself, but we, we don't have time for it all. And the movie, the middle part of the movie suffers as a result. I, think. I, I just, I don't think that there's time. So I agree. I think there's really interesting geopolitical relationships between China and Africa and India and these countries that are kind of developing their middle class and, you know, Silk Road and all of these things. But in a movie that we're going to spend a lot of time with our main character, like passing glances at Priyanka Chopra and putting her in these kind of like weird situations just to kind of like put her in the spotlight of the camera. Like it, it just does not feel like these are two movies that have the same goal in mind and i just there's not time for it right like i think i absolutely agree that this could have been a letter to his grandmother and and i don't think adding in the china element does that much for the sake of it so we're we're at just an hour let's get some closing thoughts and then i have a a question to kind of wrap up our uh, opinions on the movie when you guys give your closing thoughts all right so my closing thought, you know, we, we've said a lot of critical stuff in this spoiler half of the movie, but I want it to be clear, the critical stuff is not my feelings on the overall quality of the film. I think the movie is pretty entertaining, it's worth watching, it makes some good points, I just think they could have been put together a bit better. So overall, I'd give this movie, like, 12 long-ass emails out of 15. <laughs> Keegan? Taylor, you go first. I got to think of my of my rating system. I'm not ready. <laughs> oh, I wanted the time to think of my rating system. Um, okay, well, I, I'm going to give this movie uh, six orange tigers out of seven white tigers. And the reason I'm going to do that is because it does most of what I wanted it to do, which was to tell me an interesting story set in India. Um, I wanted characters that I thought were real, that told me something. And I think almost every single character, even the other taxi drivers, um, and their conversations with him, well, not tax drivers, other dri- hired drivers. Um, so yeah, I, I greatly enjoyed watching the movie and you know, we're nitpicking here. We're doing a podcast about film reviews. We're going to nitpick. That's, that's our, that's our whole shtick. So of course we're going to do that. But overall I, I liked it and I would recommend it for sure. Uh, yeah. So I will, uh, probably the movie probably the person here that liked the movie the least i think it was definitely like on the good not great scale i would probably give this a five fangs out of ten white tiger fangs uh i think it was very much i really rides that borderline between like a really great movie and kind of something that falls into mediocrity because of its own kind of inhibitions um overall you know glad i watched it it's certainly a good watch 
especially if you're looking at the things that like Netflix distributes in house, it's definitely on the higher scale of the, of the feature length movies. Great acting, you know, it's a very well written script. I'm really curious to see if, if all of us read the book, I think I probably would have enjoyed the book a lot more. I think like having that time to breathe and kind of expand on certain things a little bit more, it definitely worked to the benefit of, of the story. So overall, um, strong, strong five out of 10 here. So a D failing, <laughs> not going to pass your, your film class. If this was submitted as a project, you say, nope, do it again. Yeah. Oh, sh- Taylor, everyone knows school grading is madness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so the question I want to ask you guys to sum up, would you recommend Slumdog Millionaire or The White Tiger? And I think, Keegan, you've already given your answer, I'm, I'm guessing, but you can go ahead and, and start a million, I mean, and I'm a huge Danny Boyle fan, right? Like, I think, you know, 28 Days Later is probably one of my favorite zombie movies of all time. You can argue if that's a zombie movie or not, but I absolutely adore the movies of Danny Boyle. Uh, I think Slumdog Millionaire is probably one of his most fun. I... I I think that there's certain Indian audiences that think it's, you know, maybe kind of rides the line between taking itself too seriously and trying to throw in these fun elements for Western audiences of, you know, the there's a Pussycat Dolls song. Like, it, it does get kind of Western and kind of more fluffy than it, it needs to be, but I absolutely adore Slumdog Millionaire. I think it's a really fun film, and I enjoy myself much more when I watch that, even though it might not approach these topics as well as this movie does. Okay. Um, it's actually kind of a hard question for me. I, I tend to think Slumdog Millionaire is, is the better film. Um, and I actually, for me, they were different enough viewing experiences that I, I, I almost kind of struggle against the comparison. Um, you know, I, I think you can't. They're, they're, the director himself I, said it. You got no, it. You no, got no. it. Pick a side, Hank. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that like it's impossible to do. I'm just saying like for me, they're 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 different moods. You know. Um, but anyway, I think that I would, I, I would, I would recommend Slumdog Millionaire over nice. White Tiger, though I, I also like wouldn't necessarily recommend that you like pick betu- between the two of them on like one viewing night. I think they're kind of different moods for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But you know, I think that just because they they said it so many times, they brought it up so much, you gotta do the comparison. I think they didn't do it. I think they, uh, if they hadn't have forced that comparison. You wouldn't have to make it, but they did. And Slumdog Millionaire is a more enjoyable film. It feels more whole. It's obviously sensationalistic, and it has dance and and, and song numbers. But that's that's what Bollywood's about. So it's it's a it's a real uh, it's a real picture about a real thing, even if it's not as gritty and real as The White Tiger is. Yeah, certainly. And so Taylor, before you jump into your recommendation for next week, I actually want to give. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but kind of to segue into that so i don't know if anyone here or anyone in our uh, viewership listens to the slash film cast but that was one of the podcasts that i listened to a lot that kind of influenced how we wanted to design this show um very they've been running for like 20 years doing movie reviews and i absolutely love their their shows and last week they were reviewing news of the world with tom hanks and they had guest host drew mcqueenie who's you know longtime film writer as well and they accidentally described our podcast as being the ideal way to reveal movies which i thought was amazing because they were saying that drew mcqueenie he you know he was kind of turned away from star wars fandom and how much it got pretty vile and certain things with the prequels and treatment of Kelly Marie Tran and just how they turn against things. He wanted to distance himself and it wasn't until 2021 that he wanted to start writing about the sequel trilogy. And so he was saying that 
while he likes talking about new movies and keeping the lights on, like his big passion is looking back at the movies that he really loves and being able to write about them after they've had time to age and after, you know, he's had time to like sit with them and watch them over multiple years. And I absolutely agree. And I think that is like, is so, so telling that we made this podcast in that time. Cause certainly it's, it's fun to make these new reviews and I'm happy that we're getting introduced to things that I probably wouldn't have watched white tiger otherwise, but it's really, really fun that we, on top of this, you know, we get to keep the lights on and get search engine optimization by doing these newer movies, but also getting a chance to talk about these older movies that all of us really love with our friends. So with that, Taylor, what is the movie they're going to push us to watch next week? Ooh, drum roll, please. Citizen Kane. Nice. Because I widely considered the best movie ever made and i saw in the our little backlog of films neither of you guys have seen it so it's not you know one of those five hour old movies it's from 1941 it's uh it's a drama about a publisher it stars orson wells it was directed produced by orson wells um so i'm pretty excited to watch it i don't even think it's two hours long Mm -hmm. um so that's that's pretty good for a movie that's god how old is that now it's what is that that's uh 80 80 years years old Yeah. yeah crazy yeah 80 years old so that's what we're gonna watch um i've seen it once a super 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 long time ago when i was a kid probably with my grandma so don't have any memory of it um so i'm pretty excited to watch it with you guys and to see what you think and see if it holds up is it still really one of the best movies ever made i don't know let's find out yeah i'm i'm actually really interested to see this one i've honestly heard really mixed things about citizen kane from some of my my kind of film junkie friends and i'm not as much of a cinephile as them i'll admit it you know there are people more qualified than me to be doing this this sort of a thing but i'm, I'm curious to see if i share their kind of uh, more negative views of the movie because hmm. i know it's it's widely beloved yeah this is yeah, yeah. no i'm super stoked i it's one of those movies where it's like people i feel like you know, all three of us in our day-to-day lives, like people probably think we're pretty, like way more into movies than the average person. So whenever it comes up that I haven't seen Citizen Kane, I haven't seen Taxi Driver, certain movies, it's like a glaring spot in my my film backlog. So I'm super stoked on this, but it does beg the question, do we want to do a midweek review or a smaller review of Mank as well? Or do we want to save it for later? Because I feel like we're coming off the heels of that movie and it's so related. I'm sure all of us love David Fincher. Does it warrant a review? Yeah. Or should we tie it in? Do a giant two and a half hour review of both movies? That's a good question. Hmm. You know what? Maybe we're going to have to decide off the air and leave our listeners wondering (laughs) whatever comes out next. What's it going to be? Yeah. I feel like some part of the answer to this question will append or depend on my schedule. (laughs) 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 No, but Uh, um, man, I, I do think both options sound attractive to me. So we will have to discuss it off the air. Sweet. Cool. Well, thanks guys. I had a lot of fun. Keegan, thanks for recommending that. I, uh, I had a good time. Yeah, certainly. And then, so Hank, anywhere you want to point people to, I know that you made the uh, intro song for the show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to point everyone to my SoundCloud. As I mentioned last week, I am uh, a member of a two piece comedic music duo known as friends with benefits. But uh, our, the link to our SoundCloud is going to be in the description below. I would give you the, the link here, but it's got a lot of numbers in it, and I don't think you want to type it in. <laughs> okay, so look for the link. Keegan, anywhere people you want people to find you? Yeah, so I also I write movie reviews. I do my like year-end wrap-up, so you can find my writing at my blog, which is filmtran.blogspot.com. Very low rent, but I would definitely recommend people check it out. 
um, some fun fun articles over there. Awesome. Well, there's no place to find me online besides this wonderful, wonderful podcast. I devote all my waking and sleeping energy to this podcast. So this is it. If you're listening, you already found me. Congratulations. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Good.